Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, we'll be back with an organizer from West Virginia. Please don't forget, there's a donate button, the subscribe button. And the YouTube subscribes are very interesting. Even though we're doing thousands of views, our subscriber numbers never go up, which I believe is part of YouTube suppression of our channel. Uh, so if you're watching and you haven't subscribed on YouTube, uh, you don't have to go to YouTube, but if you're watching on YouTube, uh, hit the subscribe button and let's see if it actually will move. Because uh, as the, some other progressive sites have found uh, channels on YouTube, uh, there, there seems to be some uh, monkey business going on uh, with subscriber numbers. Anyway, be back in just a few seconds. As I've been promising, I'm going to be talking to organizers this year, people working at workplaces, schools, and communities fighting to make progressive change. For the last three and a half years, organizers in West Virginia have been building a movement to urge ordinary people to run for political office and win. On their website, this is how they describe their work. West Virginia Can't Wait is a movement to win a people's government in the mountain state. For too long, the wealthy good old boys club of both parties has rigged the system against us. We know our fight isn't left versus right, it's up versus down. Three years in, we've recruited and trained 107 candidates who refuse to take corporate cash and who answer to the working people of our state. We're out to win a government where the people who work the hardest and bear the most are also the ones who write the laws. In three years' time, West Virginia Can't Wait has built the largest electoral organizing infrastructure our state has seen in decades. Again, I'm quoting from the uh, website of West Virginia Can't Wait. With county teams in all but one of our 55 counties, 39 constituency groups representing seniors, veterans, and so on, and 107 candidates running under the West Virginia Can't Wait banner, our movement three years in is poised to take on the wealthy Good old boys club and win. Good old boys. I guess we're talking about Joe's friends. Now joining us is Katie Lauer. She's the co-executive director of West Virginia Can't Wait. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. So before we get into what's going on in West Virginia, how did you're not originally from West Virginia? So how 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 and why did you wind up in West Virginia? Yeah, great question. I am uh, from about an hour north of the West Virginia line. I grew up in the Pittsburgh area and I found my way here um, almost 15 years ago now. Um, I, uh, I grew up in a family where service and community involvement was really valued and so spent most of my weekends of my childhood attending one of my brother's Boy Scout meetings or helping in a community garden project or helping paint the house of a neighbor. Uh, my grandma was adamant that we shoveled all of the driveways in our neighborhood when we were growing up, that sort of thing. And when I got to college, I got, I got to go to school and I got to go to a little school in Ohio. Um, I fell in with um, a handful of folks that were from central Appalachia that taught me a lot about the fact that some of the things that I was doing sort of service work around when I was growing up um, weren't just sort of facts of the world. It wasn't just a fact of the world that some people just happened to be poor or it wasn't just a fact of the world that some people um, didn't have uh, enough money to, to keep up their houses. In fact, there was systemic failures. There was a thing going on behind the scenes that set up our society that way. And they especially taught me about the ways that was happening in places like West Virginia. And through those relationships and uh, through the things I learned over those handful of years of my life, I ended up um, moving here initially to an itty bitty little town called Arnett in the Southern Coal Fields and um, got involved in uh, fights over safe drinking water access and mountaintop removal strip mining. And and so, but for like almost 11, 12 years before West Virginia Can't Wait, you were organizing 
in those areas. Uh, as, a, as a paid staff person, were you working in organizing? It was a real mix. So my first volunteer job was with a youth-led Appalachian organization called uh, Mountain Justice. And from my volunteering with that group, I um, uh, got my first paid organizer job working for a, an Appalachian coalition called the Alliance for Appalachia that was made up of 15 member groups all throughout the coal fields um, outside of West Virginia too. That included Eastern Kentucky and um, Western Virginia and part of East Tennessee. Um, and then I just stayed involved in that kind of environmental justice work for a number of years. And so that included things like um, doing flood response work, um, West Virginia, in part because of the logging and uh, strip mining industries, and in part because of climate change, has um, fairly frequent 100-year floods. Um, and uh, it also meant uh, helping to lead some of the organizing around things like the water crisis we had here in 2014, um, where 300,000 people lost safe drinking water access for a number of weeks. And so that um, that community was a big part of uh, how I was connected in the state was through people that were doing work um, to make sure that all of us have a safe place to live. So... West Virginia Can't Wait is, is really targeted at getting people to run for office, helping them and, and winning based on a, a rel, a mostly common platform. Uh, and, and you're running in a state which has, at least for years until relatively recently, was run by the Democratic Party machine. Uh, and it's still very strong. It's Joe Manchin's uh, machine, essentially, keeps him in, in office. Um, although the state's now increasingly uh, voting Republican and the state went for uh, electorally, I, I believe, went for Trump in the last election, although during the Democratic primary, I think, what was it? Every single district went for Bernie Sanders in the that's Democratic right. primary. That's correct. Yeah. So it's an interesting mix of politics there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll say, you know, maybe to share one more piece of my personal story, Paul, that I think is a common bridge and part of... Uh, the, a unifying thread that we see through our work is that one of the reasons I got involved in electoral work, which I'd been pretty hands off about, you know, since I had first moved to West Virginia, was that in the wake of the chemical spill, um, there were some very simple changes that uh, the water company, West Virginia American Water, could have made that could have been mandated by our Public Service Commission to make it such that a chemical spill like that would have never happened again. And we did all of the things that I know to do as an organizer. We ran, I think, what was a really effective issue-based campaign, and we lost. And the reason we lost is because the governor, our corporate governor, appointed corporate appointees to occupy the positions of uh, that are on the Public Service Commission board. And I think it was sort of a last straw for me in realizing our government is so rigged, it is so much under corporate control, that even in this most extreme acute situation that impacts a significant portion of our state, we're a tiny state, 300,000 people is a, is a lot of folks for West Virginia, we have, we have fewer than 2 million people here. Um, even then, under those very drastic circumstances, we couldn't even get the most basic protections. And so part of the the foundation of West Virginia Can't Wait, and why you'll hear things in the on our website, for example, that say uh, we're out to contest for power against the leadership, the corporate leadership of both parties, is that in many ways for for folks who have lived in the state, there's not our lives are not that much different whether there are corporate Democrats or corporate Republicans that are in power. A lot of the things that um, the the day to day issues that we struggle with. Um, are sort of agnostic on, along party lines in that way, right? So um, a great example is that, you know, a lot of people's lives got worse in the state under about 80 years of Democratic Party, corporate Democratic Party power. And so um, that is a common and unifying experience. I think it's part of why we see a lot of popularity among sort of like outsider candidates, especially on the national level, like Bernie or Trump, that 
are seen as, you know, they don't represent the status quo. And I think, I think there's good reason for people to have that preference. The status quo hasn't served us very well. Um, so what is, we'll, we'll talk more about the people that you're working with and organizing and coming forward to run, but what's the basic methodology of, of organizing? What, what's your plan? Yeah, so there's there's a few things that we realized um, after the the 2022 like the 2020 cycle, um, which was our first big entree into this world. Um, one is that uh, folks uh, really there was this incredible um, amount of energy and activity around our gubernatorial campaign. It was really the thing that we were able to build a lot of our other movement architecture in conjunction with. So. Running a gubernatorial campaign meant that we were not only sort of contesting for the highest office in the state and offering solutions that were the size of the problem our state's facing right now, um, but it also was a vehicle for us to organize people into other roles. So that was the year that we um, recruited and ran 107 candidates. It was the year that we built the constituency teams and the county teams. And so um, one thing we learned in that process is that uh, the telling the truth about what it's going to take to win um, governing power is a part of what gets part of what gets people on board. Right. To, to tell the truth about what it's going to take to win, what kind of risks we need people to take, what kind of roles we need people to occupy. Um, the other thing I'll say we learned that year is that we just have an incredible amount of bench building to do. And. Um, we got a good start that year. We now, between our first cycle and this next, um, sort of these, these odd off cycle elections, we now have 20 people that are in office that are governing, um, that came through with West Virginia Can't Wait. Um, uh, what, le what levels are they in office? We have four folks that are in the, ha in the state house right now. And, uh, the vast majority of those folks are county commit, or excuse me, are city councilors. We have a couple of school board members as well. Um, and I think it's really trained our eye toward even more so than I think we began with toward doing that kind of bench building work that's going to add up over time. We're not, uh, you know, the, the, our corporate opponents have been accumulating power for decades collectively. And we think it's going to take that kind of collective generational effort to make a dent in, um, in our ability to contend with them. In, in, in these places where you've elected these 20 candidates, have they been running against people who are in areas, districts that would have been Democrat or Republican? Are you like, yeah, who, it's who are you beating? Board, right. It's across the board. And it's also, I will say, um, uh, across the board too, and the people that who run with us. So the vast majority of our candidates are Democrats. We also have people that run as independents, as Republicans, and as mountain party folks. That's the green, that's the equivalent of the green party in West Virginia, um, that all run on our ticket. And the way that we select them is they have to sign on to a pledge that is that sort of foundational, no corporate cash pledge. There's some other things included in it, as well as onto our platform. And, um, well, what are, what are the key points of the platform? Because if someone's coming from a Republican angle or a Democrat angle, I, I mean, I think what I love the the fact that it doesn't get locked into the partisan parties. On the other hand, what's the policy that people are agreeing to run on? Yeah, there's, so there's a wide range. Um, the way, so maybe I'll tell you a little bit about how we built our platform, Paul. So building the platform was a thing that came out of our gubernatorial campaign. And the way that we created it was through this program we ran called the Summer of 10,000 Conversations. And we organized our field teams um, to go out and to have and record 100 conversations with their team, 100 conversations each with their team to log into this big um, sort of one-on-one -on -one conversation log. And our gubernatorial candidate and other staff were doing those conversations at the same time. And so the platform we wrote was built out of those conversations. And so in, in many ways, teachers in our state wrote our, our educators platform, educators part of our platform. Miners wrote this part of our platform called the Miners Bill of Rights. 
um, there are a number of things in the platform about um, land ownership. And so people that have that live adjacent to land holding companies helped write that part of the platform. So it was really this sort of ground up drafting process, which I will uh, was pretty cumbersome, as you might imagine, if you can think about processing all that input um, and then was ratified through a series of delegates meetings. And so one of the things that I think makes it possible for people from different um, party affiliations to sign on to it is that there is a legitimacy to the way that it got built with a lot of input from a lot of people. I think the other thing is that we also very purposely position our organization that way. So we um, uh, have a very, one of the things we teach new people that come onto our work is that we don't we don't pick fights that are left versus right. We pick fights that are up versus down. And our interest is in having people that are in office that are not beholden to corporate interests most fundamentally. That's the, our fundamental belief about what's what's corrupt about our system. Not left versus right, up and down, but a lot of times up and down translates to left versus right. I don't know, I mean, Paul. We might disagree about that. I mean, in our we'll take, case, take, we'll take climate. You have a lot of on the Trump side, and I would say the majority of right wing polit politicians and 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 such. Not all, but are out, you know certainly Trump circles out and out climate deniers. I don't know whether that's up, down, left, right. I mean, there there is a there is a if you look at what the solutions on climate are going to be, it involves you know government deregulating dere uh, uh, coal slowly and transitioning to sustainable energy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there aren't some. You know, how is that not also a left right issue? Sure, it's a good question. I think the history of this place is one example that matters, which is that. As the coal, as the coal, as coal industry and coal executives were rising to power in West Virginia, the party that they did that under was the Democratic Party. In many ways, like Democrats were the people who were lining their pockets um, with the help of coal executives because they were doing favors for them. I think if we're if we look at the party under which the most resource extraction and wealth extraction and uh, under which most the most of the union busting happened in this state, it was under the Democratic Party's leadership. Okay, I see where the disconnect is here. I and know so, there are people that call the Democrats left. Uh, I, I mean, I sure, don't. Right, you're saying maybe yeah. this is where the disconnect in the conversation is because I never consider yeah. the corporate Democrats as being on the left, but I know a lot sure. of people do. So, and I will say, I think that that. I, Yes, I think that might be a helpful. That's a helpful distinction, and I think I respond that way because I think in the common sort of like common vernacular of the way that people talk about left and right in politics and in our state is in a Democrat and Republican framework, and uh, so maybe this is the part where I think we probably have alignment, Paul, which is like our sense is that our state got much worse under corporate Democratic leadership and continues to do so. And uh, the needs of working West Virginians continue to get undermined. And that is the, uh, in that way, we don't organizationally have allegiance to the Democratic Party. Um, so that's the thing that we want to. No, I get it. I mean, the, that I fully understand. Up. I just, like I said, yeah. I would never, I'd never call them left but whatever sure. we don't need to yeah get, we might have argue a, yeah, about the semantics of that yeah okay we're i was gonna wait to talk about this but i know everybody watching wants to talk about it so we'll talk about it and then we'll get get on more about what the real work is obviously what is go hell is going on with this joe manchin story um even the miners union which has if i understand it correctly in the past has supported mansion uh, came out and 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 demanded Manchin actually support this uh, Biden administration Build Back Better bill, um, and saying that there are some very concrete things that would help West Virginian miners if the bill was passed. It does not seem to have uh, shaken Manchin's resolve at all. Uh, give us a picture of what is that machine around Joe Manchin that makes him more or less, it seems, immune even to the miners union? Yes, I love this question, Paul, because I think the thing that you're underscoring is um, 
so important in terms of the way we think about how we relate to Manchin, which is like understanding what is the apparatus behind him and what is his history in the state. So I think a couple of important things to know about him are that he comes from um, a political family. He's had cousins and other relatives that have been involved in political machines before he came along. And he has slowly ascended over an, over a career through the ranks of being a member of the House and then the Senate and then governor and then running for Senate, right? He's sort of made, he's a politician by vocation. Um, and in the process of that, he consolidated power around him. Um, his examples of that are his cousin is the current um, director of the state party um, or the head of the state party. Um, his former, he has shared campaign managers and other sort of key um, staffers with our current um, sitting governor, Jim Justice, and in many ways was the reason that Jim Justice was elected because the Democratic machine got Jim Justice into office and sort of picked them as their guy. It's pretty hard to get elected under the, for a higher office in the state, um, and in some cases for state level offices with, um, by that I mean state house or state senate offices, um, without the blessing of that machine. And um, Manchin has even gone, gone so far to undermine the success of uh, other Democrats when they're not, they don't step in line. So the, the clearest example of that is um, Charlotte Pritt ran, is a, a, a progressive who ran against Joe Manchin um, for governor and successfully beat him in the primary. And then Manchin went on to raise funds uh, from Democrats to undermine her to so that the Republican opponent would win and so that he would continue to maintain power in the party. And so I think I think that story and I think I think the, just sort of like watching the ways in which Manchin has consolidated power over time. It's hard to see that he is serving any other entity besides his own interests. Right. Like a lot of the maneuvers he makes are about a consolidation of power. And, uh, and therefore he controls, you know, he controls the, me the mechanism, the party mechanisms that he needs to control in order to maintain his position. And because most folks are afraid of him and afraid of his influence, um, it's rare that people will challenge him upright. He's kind of in this, he sort of made himself into this excellent position of, uh, being able to, uh, um, remove, uh, remove challenges from, uh, from below, um, because he controls so much. And I think it's why he, it see is seemingly, um, impenetrable is because I think that he actually is that he, the party here won't challenge him. He doesn't get anything from appeasing the national party apparatus. He is in much more contact with his corporate donors than he is with any, any residents of the state. Yeah, wasn't there a phone call transcript? Yes, he, was he had, on the, there was a transcript. Tell us about what, what that phone call was. Because sure. why wasn't that a scandal in West Virginia? That phone call essentially revealed who he works for. Right. His week, this, I think you're referencing his weekly call with Exxon executives that he, that was recorded and leaked, um, that he has regularly. What was it? Ex Exxon and maybe some other donors too, I thought. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I know that Exxon was there. There may have been other donors as well that are, I think are in that community. And if, I, if I remember correctly, one of the points in the conversation is one of the donors said to him, if, if you're good, don't ever compromise on the filibuster, like a very direct marching order. on Sure. That. Right, exactly. And so that's, I mean, I mean, I think it's really important for us to see it because, right, that's where Manchin is getting, that's his team. That's who he's making choices alongside. And so, and we have not amassed enough power to challenge his machine outright yet. And I think that um, there's a little bit of a side comment, Paul, but I'll say is part of why West Virginia Can't Wait organizationally has really been uh, tuning our focus to bench building and trying to uh, try to build the bench and try to build the skills and power to be able to get ourselves in a position to be to challenge versus trying to influence him because we know that that Exxon phone call is has more impact than a thing that we can do right now. Um, so I yeah, I maybe to answer your outrage question, 
I think part of the answer is just like, it's just, it's just old hat that this isn't an unfamiliar, um, I mean, for goodness sakes, our, go our current governor is a coal, is, is himself a coal executive, right? That there's a, um, put in, put into office by mansion. I think, um, we have a long history here of, uh, of party bosses and industry bosses being closely linked. So I don't think the, I don't think the Exxon news is news. When the teachers went on strike uh, in West Virginia, it was a, a quite a militant strike. And if I understand correctly, had a lot of popular support. That's quite right. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe to talk more about this sort of cross-partisanness, I think one of the things that also made the strike really effective is that um, uh, there were a few Democrats in the state house that were sympathetic to the teachers, but by and large, the majority of corporate Democrats and the majority of uh, corporate Republicans did not support the teacher strike. And the organizers of that strike made a, a very conscious choice to not make the strike a partisan fight, but to make it an issue-based fight. And I think it's part of how they were able to gain ground is because they weren't asking educators to show their party affiliation at the door. They were inviting folks to say what things they needed to make their workplace better and then to go fight for them together. And I think there's some important lessons for us there and lessons we've taken in thinking about how to construct the, um, the work of our own organization about the ways in which teachers pulled that off. And one, they won real gains, especially around healthcare. So let's go back to your process. So you, you held these conversations what was it? The summer of how many conversations? The summer of 10,000 conversations. 10,000 yes. conversations. <laughs> so what is that conversation? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so they start there. Uh, uh, the question we would often ask during um, those conversation drives would start in an open-ended way. So we might ask people something like, what's the first thing you would do if you're a governor? Or what's impacting you or someone you love? Or... Uh, what's something you wish you could fix around here, right? So we try to, we try to ask, we ask questions that were open and that were close to people's experiences. And I think one of the most striking things that came out of those conversations and that has given me, I think, a spark of hope about our organize, the organizing potential in our place is that when we ask people what they want to see, for example, you know, we might follow up with like, how does that play out in the education system? Or like, what's something you want to see for your kids' schools? That by and large, the answers we got were very common, that people had a lot of similar visions for what they want to see happen um, on the local level across party and or across their party affiliation. So things like we want mental health professionals in our schools and to ensure that every school has one. We want smaller class sizes. We want fill in the blank. Um, that those were very common themes. And I think it mattered that the conversations were steered toward what's close to home versus what do you think about national figure or national issue or something else that's sort of uh, more remote and is about the things we often find ourselves, like uh, we get divided on. Um, and so those conversations, we, we logged them. There were a couple questions in the survey, in those conversations that were a little more survey based. So they might say, of these 15 issues, which of them are you most concerned about? Um, and then again, that all of that information got digested by our policy team to form the basis of a platform. And then where we had gaps, we would go and check in with those constituencies. So if we felt like, oh, we don't have enough feedback from minors about the minors piece of this platform, we would go out and have some deliberate conversations with just minors to get their take. Um, I'll say well, if, you take, if you take that education that. issue, if you take... Take the education question. Mm -hmm. You want smaller class sizes. Well, yeah. smaller class sizes means more teachers. Mm -hmm. More teachers means more money. So then you get to the question of taxation. And if you want to have that, you've got to have more revenue, which raises the issue is shouldn't wealthy people in West Virginia pay more taxes? Yes. So right. do you engage in that? Because that, you know, whether you want to call it up, down, left, or right, uh, if you're not going to yeah. tax the wealthy more, you ain't going to get more teachers. Right. Unless you want to tax working down. people more, and no one's going to. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that came out of our 
one of the things that was important to us in the platform is that we had a way to pay for everything inside of the platform, that it was revenue neutral in the way that it, it was a cost neutral in the way that it was built. And so one of the things that it did include is a wealth tax um, that was also ratified as a part of the convention and that was fairly popular among the folks we talked to. So not not necessarily a higher, not a necessarily just higher income tax, but actually wealth tax. A wealth tax explicitly. That's right. Okay. I mean, that, that I, just as a side note, that's interesting because there actually are some libertarian right types, if you want to go back to left, right, who actually are, are in favor of a wealth tax because they don't think uh, this sort of inherited uh, aristocracy is, is a good thing in terms of democracy and so on. So, and sometimes that even crosses lines. One thing we would say to folks on the campaign trail that I think is a felt it feels true to people. And then I think naming it as a truth also was like, yeah, that's right. Is that um, Jim Justice, actually, our governor, our billionaire governor, uh, who's the richest man in the state, pays a lower tax rate than someone who works at the cumulative tax rate than someone who works at the Dollar General. And the like the sort of because of all the loopholes that he's subject to. And so the uh, I think that sort of. Uh, I think there's a there's a feeling that the system is rigged, and I think that sort of information just sort of reinforces how rigged it is. I was going to say, Paul, just maybe to talk about one more rigged thing, is that uh, that part of the conversations where we ask people, what's the most, like, of these collection of issues, what are you most fired up about? Um, corruption five times more than any other issue was the thing that folks raised as a concern. That there's a, and and people would use different language for it, like, uh, crooked lot, like the lobbyists are crooked, or we need to ban the lobbyist, or it's money in politics, or it's the wealthy good old boys club, or it's uh, the elite, whatever name it was that were like, they were manipulating the way government works in order to serve themselves. I mean, that's interesting, because that isn't technically, well, it isn't technically corruption. In theory, corruption is like illegal. It's essentially calling the actual structure of the system is corrupt. Yes, right. I think both. And I would say I think both things were said in different ways, right? So I think there was a sense that uh, there's something just sort of morally corrupt about uh, lobbyists getting kickbacks, right, for the way, like, for the way in which uh, they're able to move their own agenda, right? There's sort of this, like, sense of there's just something that feels wrong about that, even if it's legal. And then I think the actual corruption of, for example, um, to talk about our, our governor one more time, has he has a record of not paying his employees and um, is and is delinquent on millions of dollars worth of taxes. And I think there's also just sort of a, there's plenty of straight up corruption too that happens that I think folks are fired up about. All right, so, so one of, you know, I interviewed Jane McAlevey, but she defines the difference between advocacy, mobilizing and organizing is that when you're mobilizing, you're more or less getting people that agree with you to go do something. Real organizing is talking to people who don't agree with you, which I'm guessing you're doing a lot of. Um, so, so explain to me, people who understand that the system is rigged and politics is corrupt and so on and so on, and, and this isn't just in West Virginia, but how the hell are they voting for, for Trump? And even more so, I can even almost understand Trump more, then why are they voting for the Republican Party? At least Trump pretends to be sort of an outlier in all this. But put the how how does your how do you understand how people get their heads around this, even if they hate corporate Democrats? I think that maybe the first thing I'll say is I'm so grateful for Jane's framework. I'm actually um, there's a piece that I I wrote that should be out in the um, the Forge in the next couple of weeks. It's about mansion and the difference between organizing and mobilization. And I think that, I think one of our, um, the mistakes that we often make in uh, doing our work as change makers is we lean too much on mobilization and put ourselves in the posture of not having enough power to make mobilization actually effective. And so I'll just, uh, I want to say yes to, to Jane's frameworks. And I think they're very helpful for us thinking about and making a distinction between the kind of work that is that a moment might call for. Um, 
for us, organizing is sort of the bread and the bread and butter of what we do and why we think uh, is a thing we're primarily oriented around. It's rare that we will um, have a mobilization moment in our work. And so it's, I think, yes, to write to say that like that sometimes means we're um, often means we're talking to people that we're not in perfect alignment with. Um, I think though, I think one uh, complication that I want to offer is that I think sometimes uh, political scientists or political pundits that, you know, will write for the Hill or whatever. Uh, I think this, I see these kind of arguments made a lot in the New York times is like that they think of people's politics as being uh, fully formed in a particular ideology or in a particular, uh, that people are Republican in a way that is like sort of embedded in them, that has a through line that is always consistent with the way that they act in the world, or that people are Democrats in a way that's always consistent with the way they act in the world. And I think that it's a mistake for us as organizers to, I think that kind of thinking and that rhetoric we hear a lot is something that's important for us as organizers to uh, reject and to actually see people as being much more complicated when we're, we're in relationship with them. So an example of this from the campaign trail is that um, there was a woman who hosted a, that we met on the campaign trail because she was a small business owner in town and someone had a relationship and we were going to meet with everybody and got introduced to her. Um, who had a Trump Trump sign out of her outside of her bed and breakfast that she owned in this rural county, and we met went and met with her, and we talked to her about things we're building the platform, and asked her what she wanted to see for the state, and um, she was really concerned about the education system. She was concerned about the ways in which uh, the resource, the money that comes from resource extraction in the state, gets swallowed up and spit out, and who's benefiting from that, and we talked to her, our candidate talked to her for the afternoon and she decided to vote for our slate and work with us and be a part of the effort we're up to. I don't think that's because she had an ideology and then the ideology became this thing. I think it's because she's complicated because we're all complicated. We all make choices all the time that are discongruous with a particular, particular, um, through line of thinking. And I think that if we want to get more folks that are with us, we have to approach them from that complication and invite them into our work in a, from the point that they can connect. It's not exactly an answer to your question, Paul, about why do people, what are the trends we're seeing? Um, which I'll just honestly say, I think is, I have a little harder time uh, because of that complication feels complicated to answer. But I think a thing I'll say uh, in the spirit of maybe this being a, uh, a convert, us having this conversation and, and other organizers watching is that I really think if we're going to be effective organizers in the moment that we're in, we've got to uh, believe that more people than might, we might see on paper could be with us and to go toward them and find out. And we're not going to get everyone. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that like... Uh, you know, we have people that are in our network that voted for Trump and people that voted for Manchin and people that voted for uh, uh, Bernie. I mean, there's a range. And I think that our job as organizers isn't to get people into some perfect level of alignment. I think it's to call a direction and invite a lot of people to come to that direction. And it's I, I'll say, like, just to say a little bit more about Trump, I think it's part of why he's an effective figure is because he's not there's not a pure ideology he's rooting for. He's he's creating an umbrella that lots of people can find themselves in and be drawn toward it. And I think our job is not to get people into ideological precision, it's to create our own umbrella and draw people into it that might have dis, might be discongruous and also, thank God, like then we'll have more power. So I anyway, I, I that's sort of how I think about like what the what the project is in front of us. Uh, Jane talks about when uh, I asked her a similar question, when you're organizing at a workplace, uh, whether it's a hospital in Vegas where she did a lot of work or other places, how do you deal with this fact that you're trying to build unity amongst the workers, but in fact, the working class is quite divided when it comes to politics. 
and and she says, well, they would focus on the contract and the struggle over the contract, yes, right? And building unity around that. And then she says, in the course of that. One, of course, you're talking about all kinds of stuff, but two, workers would start to understand, well, you know, it's the people that own this place that are the real problem. And then you start to make the connection between people who own stuff and people who don't own stuff. So there's sort of a combination. I, I Now, this is me, I think, drawing a conclusion. But there's a combination between issue-oriented organizing and building fronts around issues and then longer-term kind of strategic organizing where where there are some objectives that people aren't going to agree to but if we don't do them we're screwed and let me so let me get to that let me get to that one because it's kind of obvious especially in West Virginia right alignment can't be prefigurative like alignment can't it's not like alignment happens and then we can work on a campaign together it's that we say so an example of this in our own work right now is we're working on a, a city council race in the city of Charleston here and we are, uh, we have a campaign established. We're recruiting candidates. We build a platform in that place for candidates to run on. And we are having the difficult conversations about alignment and vision and where we're headed in the process of building out that campaign with the intention that we can win some governing power. We'll get, hopefully we'll get some folks into office. And by having our sort of contract equivalent, the, the, the campaign goals that we're setting out, it becomes a play, it becomes the umbrella. It's the place where people can get under the same tent and have the tricky uh, relationship, like hold the trickiness of the relationship where they we can find more commonality and find a more common opponent. And so I think that I think that parallel is a correct one that like alignment is a product of the work. It's not something we can prefigure. Now I, I said before that Bernie did really well in West Virginia in the Democratic primary with a, with a message attacking the oligarchy, uh, the rich, uh, taxing the wealthy, and so on. And he wins every single district in West Virginia in a party where the Democratic Party is controlled by the machine and the machine man Hillary Clinton. Um, so so it, it, this kind of language, it's not like it, it was alienating people. Quite the contrary, Sanders was winning. And I know when I've talked to people that are even pro-Trump voters and you talk against the oligarchy and, 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 or use language similar, they're actually on board with that. Somehow they think Trump's on board with that. Um, and then the other, the other issue which I found talking to people who either are pro-Trump uh, is that on climate, I, to my surprise, when, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, I agree with Trump on this, this and that. And I said, well, what about the climate denial? And they'll say, oh, no, I don't agree with that. Like people are getting the, the, the real uh, danger of the climate crisis. And it seems to me that is, and even if, I don't know if people are telling you this or not, but isn't that the real overriding issue in West Virginia, given that the economy is so much based on coal? I, yeah, maybe, maybe to speak to your first points, I think those things are true that there, I mean, I, I think one other way that the idea of corruption gets expressed is that there's this like club of people that are controlling everything. And we, the language we use in West Virginia is the good old boys club or the wealthy good old boys club. It's this sort of like cabal of people that, that truly do sort of run the show and make appointments and figure out how to enrich themselves um, because of it, both in terms of their position and, and in terms of actual wealth. Um, and that there is cross-party, cross-ideological frustration about that. I'll also say I have talked to a lot of West Virginians, especially in the last several years, and I don't think I've ever met a person who is sort of what is a climate denier, as, as I think uh, folks might think of it as. Maybe I, I think I probably have met people that have like a, maybe it'll be okay or it won't be as bad as people say it's going to be sort of thing. But I don't, I don't know that I've ever talked to someone, even coal miners who have said, you know, this is a thing that's not happening. Surely those people exist. And I don't think that it's a broadly felt idea. Um, I, and so I think those are, I think those are points of unification. Um, I don't know that, I think it's tricky to say that any one issue is sort of the issue. Um, 
I, for example, like I think someone could just as easily say the opioid crisis is that issue for our state, that it's the reason that we have 700 or excuse me, 700, uh, 7,000 children in the foster care system, which again, for our state, our size is huge. It's the reason our school infrastructure is crumbling because teachers have to act as therapists. It's the reason that people's homes, lives are being degraded. Why small businesses can't hire people. You know, I think people could, I think part of what's challenging in our state in many places is that some of these issues are so interconnected that it's hard to say that's the thing. I think similarly, you could say, well, the coal industry is responsible for the opioid crisis because part of how people started taking pills in the first place is because doctors that were connected to the coal industry. People should watch that TV series, Dope Sick, which is about exactly this. A young woman who works in the coal mines starts taking Oxycontin because of an injury. Uh, in fact, it was Daniel Ellsberg phone me because I'm doing this film with him. You got to watch Dope Sick because that's what it was like for the nuclear war business. It's the same thing. They knew how destructive this could be, uh, but they, for money, they're doing it anyway. I mean, certainly all these things wind up being much the same question. Right. So I think in that sense, um, and I'll say is maybe one more reason, you know, one more reason that we felt it was important to put together a comprehensive platform for the state is because so many things are interlocking that we've got to think about some of the problems we're facing um, uh, in, an, in an interconnected way. To us, the through line is that um, there are a handful, of, there are a small handful of people that are benefiting off of this setup and a vast majority of us who are getting screwed by it. And that's I'll say like a unifying, one of the unifying forces that we uh, unite our teams around and I think our, unite our work around. Um, yeah, so I think that's how we approach the, approach the bigger puzzle. So when you knock on doors, I assume that's a lot of the work is knocking on doors, right? There's a bunch of knocking on doors, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's thing. And, and people come and you start, whether it's well, even take take the opioid crisis. So, what what are your candidates proposing as a solution to the opioid crisis? Yeah, I'll offer the example in Charleston because it's the most it's the freshest thing we're working on that I think goes after this. So, um, Charleston, West Virginia, is not only one of the sort of centers of the opioid epidemic. It's also um, says the CDC is currently staring down the most significant HIV outbreak in the country, which are related things, um, along with other sort of tangential health crisis issues. And so there's a lot of things that are compounding that are around um, to the impacts of these big pharmaceutical companies wreaking havoc in the state. Um, there has been a, a local organization called SOAR that's been um, doing harm reduction work in the city um, for a number of years. And we're doing things like um, making sure people had um, safe implements and instruments to use drugs and making sure that people had access to things like HIV screening and um, sort of other sort of basic medical care. And all of the things that they were promoting and doing were all in accordance with CDC guidelines um, that would uh, sort of lessen the impacts of the crisis. Their work recently got um, outlawed, outlawed by our Democratic-run uh, mayor, our Democratic-run city council and mayor. Um, and so, as you might imagine, the crisis has been getting worse ever since that harm reduction effort got. Um, uh, forced to stop, um, and so part of what we're part of what we're advocating for inside of the um, the Charleston Can't Wait platform are uh, decriminalizing those harm reduction measures and going a little further. So there's also um, there's also measures in the platform to open a safe injection site to have um, a 24 hour trauma resource center um, and to to make basic services like syringe services and syringe drop boxes, um, a thing that is a, a community service that um, helps people that are using use more safely. Um, so those are, the, those are the kinds of things that are in the measure. And uh, I think that the, 
you know, knocking on doors and talking to folks, including talking to folks who, um, what some of the parts of our campaign included um, writing letters to folks that are in jail and also reaching out door knocking or tent knocking in places where folks um, are housing insecure or are houseless. Um, and what we found is the closer that folks are to those problems, the more creative and bold solutions and ideas that folks had for them. And so that's what made it into our platform. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much, Paul. It's good to be here. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And don't forget, there's a donate button. If you're on YouTube, please hit subscribe. And, and I don't know if we have to sue YouTube to do something about this, uh, but let's see what happens. And uh, most importantly, get on the email list. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, they've already taken down some of our videos. Uh, it was only because Matt Taibbi wrote an article about it that they put them back up again. Uh, we never know what's going to happen on YouTube, but if you're on our email list, you'll know what's happening. And the best place to watch, actually, is at the website, theanalysis.news. Thanks again.